Lord, thank you for Gordy. Thank you for the words that you've given him um, to speak to us today. Speak through him, Lord. Help us to have open minds and hearts to receive what you would have for us. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy uh, 25th Sunday of Advent. We're getting close to the end of the Christian year. And we have made a decision to allow the lectionary, if you don't know that fancy word, it's a fancy theological term for kind of the, the readings that follow the church year. And uh, churches around the world read the same scriptures at the same time. Pretty powerful way to retell the story through the Christian calendar. So we've been looking at the theme of sharpening our focus. Uh, we felt that's important to be sustainable, which is kind of our overarching theme this year, sustainability. Good word, really good word on all levels. And we've just found that if you're not focused, it's not sustainable. We've been made as human beings to be focused and as a church to be focused. So we're looking at how how we can sharpen that focus. And I think a really important part of this is to be informed by the prophets. It's not easy in a very distracted world to stay focused. And we need the prophets of the Old Testament to help us through that. So that's why we're calling this part of the series the prophetic imagination. And we're looking at different elements of the minor prophets. And today we're going to look at the prophet Haggai. Last time it was Habakkuk. Uh, next week... I think we're going to Isaiah. Dean's going to talk to us a little bit of Isaiah, a little bit of that uh, projection of where we're going. I think it's really important to, in our focus to see the, the long term, the big picture. I love what uh, Justice Murray Sinclair says. He's the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He says, you, you non-natives have five-year goals. For First Nations, we think generationally. We think seven, year, seven generations ahead. What are they going to be uh, picking up as the impact of what we did today? And uh, so that long-haul picture, I think, is very kingdom. And so today I want to, I want to deal with uh, something that I think is a real, uh, gets us derailed, gets us off our, our focus, and, and, and that is what have you ever felt compared to? Have you ever suffered from comparison? It might be, you know, looks or math skills or sports ability or, I don't know, money or possessions, but you, at some point you felt this comparison that hits you at some level and you ended up on the negative end. Well, let's put it this way. In, if you ended up on the negative end, of course you felt per perhaps in, inferior. This person's better than me. This person's more worthy of love than me. Or the, the positive end is, is you feel resentment towards anyone who might threaten your fragile status. And so it can plague us our whole life. I mean, from birth to grave, we can be suffering from this kind of comparison. I even have felt it. I don't feel it these days, but I have felt it in the past, even at ministerials, where our churches are compared. And what's going on? And everybody puts on their best face, you know. When they share, and we don't share about our struggles, thank God those days are past, but I remember it happening. The problem is we are all so unique that comparison is redundant. Every church is so unique, and yet so much energy and time can be wasted on this, and we're hooked 
We get hooked into comparing by that false self. Remember that false self we talked about? That false self is, I am what I, what I have or possess. I am what I've do, done or achieved or what I do, yeah. I am what others think about me. So those are the three. And if you look at our society and our culture, there's basically two cultures. There's that culture. And then what I would say is the kingdom, the kingdom culture, which is a totally different. So the false self finds value and worth based on a false value system, based on false metrics. You know what I mean by metrics? How you measure, how you gauge. And false ideas of success. And the most damaging impact it can, is it causes shame. A sense, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this sense that I am not enough. Shame is this intensely, Brene Brown says it this way, I love her definition. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. That's horrible. That's hell. That is hell. I, don't, I can't find any better definition of hell than that. It has a paralyzing effect so that we're no longer living out of our true self but constantly trying to get ourselves back in by being a false self. And so, this, and so we're no longer comfortable in our own skin. And it causes us to lose focus and prophetic imagination is needed to bring us back, to cleanse our lenses. And so the text that we're looking at today is about a group of people who suffered a unique kind of paralysis, a unique kind of shaming, a unique kind of comparison. It wasn't comparison with other people so much. It wasn't comparison with each other. It was comparison with the past. It was a paralyzing nostalgia that kept them from embracing the present. And I want to look at that, because I think that affects us more than we realize. So the setting and the context is there was a paralysis that hit the exiles when they came back out of Babylon, and they were returning to their homeland that had been devastated by war and genocide. Now, let me say this. I think it would be helpful to draw on some Bible stories. I found some free Bible story downloads. This is so cool. So this is what's happening. When the Babylonians came and just, they came in a in, uh, uh, few centuries before Christ, after Dave, the Davidic kingdom had gone for about uh, five centuries, four or five centuries, and their temple had been burned and devastated, leaving nothing but ruins in the city as well. And the prophets had informed them over and over again, and this is my interpretation of judgment. They had warned them over and over again that if you lose focus, which was love God, love each other. And the negative is idolatry and injustice, right? Those were the two things. It's really simple, folks. Karen spoke about it a couple weeks ago here. Just love God, love neighbors, stay focused. God said, you do that, it's going to go well. If you don't do that, your train's going to go off the tracks. My understanding of judgment is that sin and evil carries within it its own consequences. 
And that's what happened. And so uh, they were taken into exile for 70 years. And the land was wasted with very few inhabitants. And for 70 years, they actually started feeling at home in Babylon. And in Persia, which, which was another empire that took over, actually, while they were in exile, as we read about in the book of Daniel. But at last, as God had promised through Jeremiah and other prophets, it was time to go home. And so King Cyrus, very powerful Persian king, really received a revelation from God to let them go. And he actually plundered a lot of the wealth that Babylon had plundered from Israel and gave it back to them. He said, go home, build your temple. And so they took this route. So this is kind of the... They were taken in this area, and they took this route. They took the wheelchair-accessible route. And it's true. If you, if you read how long it took them and... Uh, the route they took, it is not as the crow flies. It was definitely a route that everybody could return. It, it was accessible. I love that. So it took a long time. So there was this initial, initial uh, euphoria that we read about in the first psalm. Do you remember the first psalm? When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion... We were like those in a dream. Our tongues were filled with laughter. Our mouths with songs of joy. Then we said, the Lord has done great things for us. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And then they saw Jerusalem in rubble and they went, oh, no. And that's why the psalm ends, those who sow in tears will reap with joy. Because they realize, hey, there's a lot of tears still happening here. There's going to have to be some faithful sowing in the midst of devastation. You ever felt that way? Faithful sowing in the midst of devastation. That's what I think Joseph of Arimathea was doing when he took that dead carcass of Jesus, bloodied and full of manure and just death, right? Took that body, washed it, wrapped it. He was sowing in tears, right, in the midst of devastation. And many times we're called to do that. So, first of all, resources and margins were, were thin. Think about this. The resources and margins uh, that they had were small. The land, the property, the homes had not been maintained. The workload was overwhelming. They, they all became obsessed and absorbed with their own lives and their own houses and their own renovations, and they didn't have time for God's temple. They had to invest so much time, money, and energy just to keep their own act together. Instead of thriving, they were just surviving. And meanwhile, the temple, the house of God, was being ignored. It lay abandoned in ruins. And what they found was this incessant problem. You ever felt this way? You do a lot, a lot of work, and there's no results, or little results. The amount of work you do is out of proportion with the, the fruitfulness so Haggai, the prophet that we're looking at today, explained to them why this was happening. He said to them, don't you guys notice you're sowing much, but you've harvested little. Uh, John O'Donovan quoted that on his, his podcast. You've sown much, but you harvested little. Why? He says, because my house is in a room, guys, and each of you is just renovating your own house. 
<laughs> that kind of rings a bell for me. I live on Renovation Row. It used to be called Venable Street. So Haggai told him, he said, you got, the, he said, the offerings are down. The, the, the house of God is, is, is in a mess. He says, you don't have your priorities straight. He said, put God's house first with your time, your money, your energy, and God will bless you. Jesus' parallel was seek first the kingdom of God. I've pastored for almost 40, well, over 40 years now. And I've always found there's never a good time to put God first. There's always a reason. My kids are in diapers. I'm in university. You know, I got aging parents. You know, I got my job. It's kind of in an intense. There's always, remember those guys that said, Jesus, I will follow you, but let me first. There's always a let me first. It never ends. It'll never be gone. You just got to do it. Just got to get down and do it. Whatever that looks like for you, just Stop making excuses, right? That's what Haggai was saying. Don't make excuses. I know it's hard. You don't have any money. You don't feel like you can afford to give or tithe and put God's house first. But he said, if you will seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added to you. I feel like I'm supposed to say that for somebody today. So they responded and they took an offering, right? He kind of chewed them out a little bit. They took an offering. One guy there wasn't too impressed, didn't feel like he had too much to give. So they took an offering, they began to work, they went into the forest, they got beams and lumber and began to build God's house. It doesn't mean they ignored their own house, but they, they, they got their priorities straight. And um, so first they repaired the altar. And uh, they gathered wooden beams for the foundation of the temple. But then they faced the most paralyzing challenge, and it was this. They laid the foundations of the temple. And I don't know if you've seen a foundation. I've seen a lot of foundations. Because I live, like I said, on Renovation Row. And there's a lot of houses that all you see is a big hole in the ground and piles of dirt. Now these guys, they were pretty excited and so when they got that foundation and that pile of dirt already and kind of the, the, uh, the structure of the temple in the, in the ground, they stopped and had a party. And it was a bit of a strange party. Ezra describes it in chapter 3 and 4. Here's the young guys. These are guys that came out of Babylon. You know, kind of Robin's age. <laughs> They're excited. Woo! The foundation is down. Woo! They're excited. They... But there was, a, there was a generation of people that were, must, they had to have been over 70. There was a generation of people there that still remembered what the former temple was like, and that's what they looked like. They were crying. And what was going on? Why were they weeping? Well, remember that the date of this celebration was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you know anything about the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, it was the party of all parties. It was the most joyous and festival celebration. So this, this sense of memory, nostalgia, would only heighten this sense of comparison that they were feeling. 
because they had no temple courts to celebrate it. The crops were skimpy. The land hadn't been worked on for, for, for decades. All of the abundance of the past was being compared to the meagerness of the present. Nostalgia is comparing past with the present. Nostalgia can be paralyzing. And, and nostalgia is paralyzing often because the, our memory is selective. Have you ever noticed that? Selective memory. You know, people, some, I hear sometimes, and it's usually Christians who are the worst for this, we want the good old days in Canada, and they do that in the U.S. as well. We want the good old days. We need, you know, we need those good old days back, but I must ask, but good old days for who? Right? Are we talking about good old days for African Americans who suffered under slavery and segregation in the 1960s? or segregation in the 60s and slavery 100 years ago? Are we talking about First Nations living on reservations with substandard drinking water, housing, education, and medical care? So are we talking about white Christians who are suburban and living in gated communities? Right? And everything cried out, inferior, inferior, inferior. As they built this temple, everything for these older people, it looked inferior. The gold which he had lavished on the house before, was no longer available. The precious stones were not there anymore. Talmudists who are Jewish traditionalists who would write Jewish tradition reckon there was many things wanting in this second temple. The Ark of the Covenant was gone. They didn't know what the Babylonians did until Indiana Jones found it centuries later. The cherubim, you know, and the mercy seat, that was gone. The holy fire, the Shekinah glory, the Urim and the Thummim, whatever those things were, they were gone. And according to Josephus, Josephus, the Jewish historian, only half, it was only half the height. That's what, the, what, that's what it ended up being. And so the uh, measurements on the foundation were, they could already see it was just way smaller. It's way smaller. And you see, as then, as today, size matters. In addition to all this, some people came in and sought to discourage them and make them afraid. And if you study carefully the chronology of the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah, the work of this temple at this point, without any legal action, without any king making an edict, without any, any uh, military officer enforcing it, the, the work on this temple stopped for 16 years years. They stopped. It was, all it was was a hole in the ground. Why? Simply due to comparison. Discouragement. Paralysis. Disillusionment. And the young people, what did they say? Yeah, I guess you guys are right. Now that, you think, now that we think about it, yeah. Yeah, it is a bit. A bit sucks. This really sucks. You ever heard that word? We're wasting our time. Sixteen years, my friends. And all that stopped it was words. Has that ever happened to you? Words stopped you. Nobody enforced it. Nobody forced you physically or legally. But words stopped you from living out who you are. And following Jesus and 
going for those dreams that he's put in your heart. Discouragement. So it was in this time that God raised up two prophets. One was Zechariah, the other was Haggai. What I love about this is that Zechariah was one of the young guys. Haggai was one of the old guys. Isn't that beautiful? How that God raised up two generations of prophets. And it changed everything. See, we, we need each other this way. This is so important for the health of the church and the kingdom. Is that the generations work and, and live and learn from each other. And Haggai was one of those guys. And uh, so there's a, there's a number of things they said. But let me say this. Before we read the text, these words were recorded in, their, in the books by their names. Haggai and Zechariah, both are in the Bible. Both pr prophetic texts. And the result, it says in Ezra, not in these books, but in Ezra, it says that the building of the temple prophesied under the, or, or prospered rather, under the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. Isn't that amazing? Words stopped it. Words got them going. These guys prophesy. What did Paul say prophecy is in 1 Corinthians? Those who prophesy, prophesy for encouragement, comfort, and building up. That's what prophecy is. If prophecy doesn't do that to you, then either you're hearing it wrong, or they're saying it wrong, or something's wrong. Prophecy builds you up. You're, you're who you really are and calls you forth. Into your true identity in God. Doesn't tear you down. Doesn't leave you shamed. How many of you ever had, had somebody give you a word and you left shamed? You felt like you were less than. You felt like you didn't measure up. I've had that happen. That's why we encourage, if anybody's giving a prophetic word, make sure that you test that word. Have a leader or an elder or someone that can hold you accountable for a word, especially one-on-one. -on -one. When you do it in the public, then we're already kind of, there's that communal accountability. But if you go up to somebody and give them a word, I want to caution you. I've seen so much damage when that's done wrongly. So we call for accountability. I, I have no problem saying, you know, I feel, I feel a word for you, Veronica. But you know what? Stephen, could you come over here and just listen to this and just help me weigh this? Just so she feels safe with that word. That's what prophecy does. It builds you up, encourages you. So I thought I'd get that little pastoral exhortation off my chest. So let's read the text together. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel. Now, by the way, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He was, he was uh, the grandchild of, of um, oh, my, my brain. I think I have it down here. He was one of the last kings. In, in, uh, and he was taken, this last king was taken to Babylon and became a, uh, a captive. And then, and then God showed him incredible favor near the end of the, uh, his captivity. So this, this uh, Zerubbabel was the grandson of one of the last reigning kings in Israel before the exile. So Zerubbabel is actually of a royal line. And so he was leading the troops to build the temple, to come back and to restore the city. And 
So speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak. Now Joshua was also the grandchild of the former high priest in Israel. So these are all descendants. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? What I love about what Haggai does here is he doesn't deny the shame. One of the most important things about shame is to not suppress it, deny it, pretend it's not there because it becomes an elephant in the room. What Haggai does is he names it. He names that sense of comparison they're feeling, that sense of nostalgia. And I believe every one of us needs that. We need a safe place where we can go with our shame, where it can be named and brought into the light. And it loses its power. You pull the teeth out of it. So he said, I know what you're thinking. This looks like nothing. And so he says, does it seem like nothing? He says, but now be strong, Zerubbabel. Declares the Lord, be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Zechariah, the way that he said it, I love it. He said, do not despise. This is the young guy, the young guy. Don't despise the day of small things. And Jesus said it a very similar way a few centuries later, didn't he? What is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a little grain of mustard seed, but the smallest. But you keep sowing. You keep planting in faithfulness. Because it's not, as Mother Teresa said, the size of the work you're doing. It's the size of the love that you're investing in the work, right? So, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. You feel like you don't have any? Don't worry, I got a lot. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So four things. Number one, cleansing our lenses. The first thing was hopeful realism. Is that what... Haggai gives as a gift to the people of God as he names the shame. But he names the shame in the presence of God. He names the shame in the presence of a safe and loving community that's committed to that focus of loving God and loving people. The second thing is he recovers the true story. Instead of talking about the good old days, he talks about the big story that they're anchored in. They were brought out of Egypt and God made a covenant with them. And that word in the Hebrew is God literally cut covenant with them. What that means is, no matter how it looks or how you feel, I've never left you. I've never abandoned you. 
when you sinned, when you went into idolatry, when you had child sacrifice and you did abominable things in my presence, I never left you. When you were taken into Babylon and made captives, I was with you and I'm with you now. That's the covenantal nature of God. He's entwined his life and his heart with us. How do you be strong? It's not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by a hopeful realism and realizing our story. My mom is, is, has the onset of dementia, and so my conversations with her every week are very interesting because when I talk to her, she, she doesn't remember the last week. So she doesn't remember who visited her, who called her. So her, her summary of the week is, is it was good. It, things are good. And so there's a couple of things that seem to really um, give us these amazing conversations. And one is I bought her a book called A Time to Grieve. So on the phone, I will ask her to just read me a chapter from that book. It's just one page, like a little devotional. So she'll read me that chapter. And then as she reads that chapter, usually we'll touch on something that is anchored in her story. Her memory is unbelievable about my childhood, about her, her life with my dad, who, who just passed away in May. She remembers all those things. She remembers the funeral. She remembers... So, so these amazing conversations will flow out of, out of these, these rivers that are opened up as we read this devotional, and we'll talk about the story. And then amazingly, something will just kick in with regards to the past week. And that, that's where we are now. But what I've experienced is just the power of story that we're anchored in this memory. And she's so anchored in her story and her memory. And we all suffer this memory loss. It may ex ex it express itself differently, but spiritually we suffer from memory loss. And we need to be anchored in our story that God has covenanted with, with us through the cross through the blood of Jesus through his death and resurrection and he said I'm with you no matter what isn't that the most important thing no matter what you're doing no matter what hell you may be facing right now if God is with you it changes everything and that was Haggai's encouragement to them seeing Emmanuel God with us and then finally a willingness to adjust our lenses and or interpretations and paradigms. Now, what do I mean by that? So this is why I mentioned my mom. So I'm talking to my mom about this. I, I often talk to her about what I preached. Uh, so a lot, of the, a lot of the conversation is often about my week, and we engage on that. Or I talk about what I'm going to preach. So this week, I talked to her. I, I talked to her several times. So the second time I talked to her, I talked about this text. And I said, Mom, this text is strange. Because Haggai promised that the glory of this latter house would be greater than the former. But what actually happened from our human perspective? That temple was built. It was way smaller than Solomon's temple. They never saw the Shekinah glory that was promised by Haggai that the glory of the latter would be greater than the former. In fact, that temple struggled for centuries up until the time of Jesus, and then a revised, renovated version of it by Herod was destroyed by the Romans. 
in 70 AD. How many know that could make you a little bit disillusioned about the promises of God? So I'm talking to mom about this on the phone. I said, mom, don't you think that that seems like, what, 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 what did Haggai, what was he talking about there? The glory of this latter house will be greater than the former. And then this long pause on the phone. She takes a deep breath and she said to me, well, it was fulfilled in Jesus. He's the temple. And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up. And Paul talked about the glory that appeared in the face of Christ was greater than the glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. And it's greater than the glory of the Solomon Temple. The glory of this latter house will be greater than the former. I remember when I had my nervous breakdown, the same thing happened. I'd get all these promises. The glory of your latter life is going to be greater than the former. And, you know, I had one of the biggest youth groups in Canada, one of the biggest churches in Canada. So we always interpret those promises through those kind of lenses. The big, the impressive, right? But you know what? The glory of this season and what I've experienced of God through these almost 30 years now in Vancouver, I never saw that in Calgary. We saw the big, but just the, the way the kingdom of God comes in the midst of the greatest brokenness. So sometimes in order to overcome our disappointment, we have to give up those false metrics. And I'm, never, I'm not going to limit God on what God wants to do. If God wants to send a massive revival and bring thousands to Christ, oh, it makes me tired thinking of it. But... Oh. Let him do it. Let him do it. But I have a feeling it's going to look differently. That, you know, the, I read Bob Birch's testimony, what happened at St. Margaret's, the Jesus People's Movement of the 70s. And this cry came out of my heart. God, do it again. Do this again. And I felt like the, I heard the spirit whisper, I will, but it's not going to look the same. So if you're looking for what it looked like before, you're going to miss it. You've got to have eyes to see that leaven in the lump and the grain of mustard seed. So the songwriter, we're entering the season, come desire of nations, come. Fix in us. That's the temple. You are the temple of God now. Christ the cornerstone. Come desire of nations, come. Fix in us your humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp your image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in your love. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. A greater glory. We have it now. No matter what you're facing right now, no matter what you're feeling, the struggles, the setbacks, the shame, the comparison, the disappointments, the disillusionment, God says he's with you. His glory, this glory is greater than Solomon's. It's greater than that former glory. Greater than Moses. You're people of the new covenant. He's covenanted with you. He's got you in his hand. He said, nobody can pluck you out. He's going to be with you. He's going to be with you when you fall, when you fail, when you get back up again and you fall again, when you try to get back up and somebody says, ah, just stay down. He's going to be with you. He's going to be with you. 
So prophetic imagination cleanses our lenses of markers and paradigms of the false self. Because that's what these guys were victims of, is this false idea of success, freeing us to live focused lives out of our true selves in Christ, to love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. So we have a few minutes. So what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to talk about a time in your life where you felt compared to, if you want, you don't have to. But most importantly, I want you to talk about this, just this, Describing a time in your life when someone encouraged you and strengthened you to be with you, to be who you really are, and you just didn't feel alone. What did that encouragement sound like? What did it do? I think that there's, there's a, a strengthening of this gift that God wants to do. So important. Remember Joe Kelder talked about that green fog. He, when he came to Vancouver and he brought 200 people from Langley Vineyard to plant the church here. And he said within six months, most left and went back to Langley. He was so discouraged. And he was praying and he saw this, this sea serpent. And it was a First Nations legend that was, he saw a vision of this sea serpent coming out of the Burrard Inlet and it had green fog, and it was just spewing green fog all over the city. And he asked the Lord, what's that green fog? Because it was just, it was like a paralyzing effect on people. And the Lord showed him that that green fog was this feeling that there's nothing I ever do that will make any difference. doesn't matter what I do. My sowing is, is I'm wasting time. Those sowing in tears, I'm wasting my time. And he said, well, Lord, why, why is that? And, and the Lord showed him historically that there used to be communities from thousands of years back where a community would build up, they'd get, build their houses, they'd have a nice community, and then they'd get, they'd get invaded by another uh, nation, and, and the, their village would be destroyed, and they'd have to start all over again. And they'd build it up, and then another. It, it was just like this... Psh, psh, and it's, it's the feeling you can get in Vancouver, and we feel like, you know, why invest in relationships? How long are you going to be here? There's so much transience, and we don't want to sow, right? We hold back. We'll wait till you're here five years, then we'll invest, right? And that happens. That's why it's, we're so lonely here. We're so lonely in this city. We hold back. We're fearful. It's that paralysis. And... So we need an oxygen mask from that green fog because it hits us. usually hits me about once a week, somewhere, somehow. Something somebody said, something somebody did, maybe something I did. The green fog hits. Got to get that oxygen mask on. Got to call up Wade, get some encouragement, get some prayer. Hey, man, just need to hear hear that I'm not alone in this. That's the big one. I'm not alone. So, can we talk about that? Just form groups of three or four. Talk about what is a, a, a way that somebody has encouraged you, that called you back to your true self and got you going again. Right? And maybe talk a little bit about what you're facing today and just pray for each other.
and I'll call you back in about five, five, ten minutes, all right? So go ahead and do that. Maybe Dean put a little music on and stop the podcast, and we'll, we'll just come back in a few minutes, all right? Groups of three or four, go for it. I just break that paralysis. Break it off. Come on. And some of you may still want to continue to share or pray, and, and that's totally good. I uh, just want to bless you to walk in hope, to walk in encouragement, to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, may the grace, love, and communion of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a good week. Enjoy some snacks and coffee.